everyone, and welcome to the Two Guys and Some Data podcast. On this show, we don't just talk about data. We talk about how you can use data to help you make more money. I'm Larry Cavanaugh. And I'm Alan Abbott. Our topic today is on relationships, specifically the most beloved relationship of all to marketers, the customer relationship. So, Alan, before we kick off this conversation, and it's interesting, it's about relationships, because uh, you and I have had one for a while, uh, let's talk about your latest announcement. Uh, sure, okay, and it, it's, a, it's a happy, sad moment for me. Uh, I am retiring after 43 years of adventures in the workplace, uh, and I have enjoyed the work immensely and the people I've met, but I am totally ready for a life without a, a, a quarterly business plan to hit. Well, Alan, i got to say, you're the only person I've ever done a podcast with. I just don't know how I'm going to go on. But before you, before you depart uh, and, and in your last podcast here, uh, any words of advice you'd like to give our listeners or key lessons you've learned along the way? Uh, sure. I, you know, I've been doing this since uh, 1986. I've been involved in the direct marketing industry. And most of my experience was really, as you know, on the client side of things. And I, I ran... Uh, you know, three brands over the course of, of uh, 20 some odd years. And without a doubt, the biggest change that I have seen is the nature of the relationship between advertisers and, and consumers. And, you know, when I started, there was no such thing as personalization in direct mail. So we would, you know, mass produce a catalog or direct mail piece and send out hundreds of thousands or, or, or millions of copies of it. And they were all the same. And as a matter of fact, not only were they all the same, but uh, you know, in the catalog world, we would uh, print three or four versions at a time where all we changed was the cover and maybe the inside uh, you know, eight pages. And today, you go on a website, and the next day, a piece of direct mail that's personalized to you is, is on its way. Uh, and the, you know, the communication was controlled almost entirely uh, by the advertiser, and it, you know this was the heyday of direct marketing and cataloging. I, I still have at home a uh, magazine called Catalog Age, a copy of it from 1988, and it was folio size and 200 pages long. <laughs> wow! And it came out every month, and it uh, uh, it was very focused uh, not on consumers. It was focused on how do you do? You know, how do you buy printing? You know, what are the you know latest breakthroughs in technology on prepress and you know lots of stuff on lists, and it was very internally focused. No, I, uh, Catalog Age, boy, that brings back memories. Uh, I think I spoke at a Catalog Age conference a long, long time ago. But Alan, you know this whole concept that uh, you know in the old days. Uh, advertisers were in control of the communication and that consumer was not in control. I know that's only that's sort of what you're hinting at a little bit, not exactly what you're saying, but you know, I'm a kind of contrarian here. I think at least when it comes to direct mail, that's nonsense. I think direct mail is actually different from a lot of other forms of advertising in that the consumer really has always been in control. You know, we may have printed those millions of catalogs and sent them out, but when the piece got into the mailbox and the consumer picked it up, he or she had a choice to just Pitch it, you know, throw it away, which was very different than, you know, if you go back in time to, you know, radio and TV, where, you know, the advertiser really was in control. You know, if you were watching a show, you know, it was a top 10 show, a top 20 show that you really wanted to watch, uh, you know, you had to sit through the ads. You didn't know how long the ads were going to be. If you 
got up and went away, you know, you know, might have missed, you know, when your show came back and you would have had to wait, you know, nine months for summer reruns to catch up on that part of it. You know, advertisers really had control over consumers in that in that day and age. And that didn't change until 1975 or so. And I remember being a kid and my dad coming home with this machine that he called the Betamax. Uh, and it allowed uh, for us to record up to five hours, five whole hours of content. And when we did that, we could actually skip over the commercials. And that's, to me, when uh, you know, the, the, the scales started to tip uh, when it comes to control, and consumers uh, began to have some control over advertising. Uh, yeah, definitely true. Uh, but I will counter by saying that the number of options that consumers had uh, to communicate back were very, very limited. Uh, you, you know, you could write a letter to the customer <laughs> service department. Uh, certainly you could throw out the catalog or the direct mail piece, and a lot of, a lot of folks did. Uh, and, you know, obviously life is, is very, very different today, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Well, well, so my point on that is not that consumers, you know, throw out direct mail pieces, is that, as in fact, I would say actually my point is the opposite. I think direct mailers had to think about how do I delight a customer way before any other medium had to think about it because consumers had that control. And I think it actually gives gave mm -hmm. direct mailers a, a little bit of an edge uh, as the scales began to tip because we always had to deal with that. Everyone else has only had to deal with it, you know, you know, since '75 and beginning in '75, but really not until much later. All right, point well taken. And then the internet happened. And everything changed. So when I started in this industry, uh, it was almost like a continuing laboratory experiment. It was this closed system, uh, and I'll, I'll talk from the cataloger perspective because that's what I was doing early in my career. So you know, we mailed 14 catalogs a year. Uh, we went to press four times a year. Uh, the, the cycle to produce the catalog was 13, 14 weeks long. Uh, we'd mail it out. We would get uh, orders in. We uh, captured, and it came in either in the mail or the phone. Actually, when I started at Bloomingdale's by mail, we, we used to actually take the mail trays from the post office and weigh them <laughs> as a way to you know, provide a flash sales report to uh, to senior management, but we got uh, source codes on you know 85, 90 percent of the orders. So not only did we did we know uh, you know where the person came from, but we knew what segment they came from on someone else's list or our, or our own list. Uh, you know we were able to do really tight analytics, and it was just this you know ideal. Uh, way of doing business and you know methodologies had developed over the years uh, where I remember the guy used to be uh, head of marketing at LLP telling me that they would they would predict they would forecast catalog response to a tenth of a percent mm. but there was one really you know downside to that whole closed system uh, which was that it was really really hard for catalog brands to get their brand out there. There was really no other way to do it. And uh, thus, a lot of these companies, although they were very creative uh, merchants and, and uh, very strong marketers, they remained relatively small. And the 
uh, you know, the really, really large catalogers were very limited to, you know, L.L. Bean, Land's End, Spiegel, you know, back in the day. And, uh, but the internet changed all of that. Uh, so it made it a lot easier for consumers to, uh, you know, find the brand. Uh, also made them a lot, made it a lot easier for them to comment on the brand and, you know, sort of jump into the dialogue. Uh, but it also made uh, our lives as marketers much more complex. And that's been a challenge now that's been going on for you know, over 20 years. And people are still struggling with the complexity of the system and specifically order attribution, mm -hmm. you know, which you know, I'm spending all these advertising dollars and you know, which, 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 wor which is working and which is not. Yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, before the dawn of the internet, um, advertisers it was really up to the advertisers to find the consumer you know it was it was we were uh, we've you know we were mailing different lists we were perhaps advertising on different radio shows we were advertising on different TV shows based on demographics but we were trying to find the consumer and I think the internet one of the changes that the internet made was that it allowed the consumer to find advertisers and it changed, you know, that's a, a pretty significant change. And as you say, you know, one of the downsides, or one of the, I don't know, I think it's all upside. I love the internet. But the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that marketers had to deal with, as you say, you know, is this, hey, I used to, you know, when I was trying to find a customer, I knew that this uh, marketing effort I put out there, um, you know, uh, anyone who came back in was a result of that marketing effort that I put out there. Anyone who responded uh, was doing so based on the fact that I had this push uh, marketing effort out there. Today now, it really, you know, a lot of uh, how uh, consumers and brands get together is much more of a mutual situation. Uh, and in fact, it may even be more consumers finding brands than brands finding consumers. Very different world uh, than uh, what we had before. And, you know, I think as, you know, as you say, sort of changing the, you know, has changed the conversation and the relationship uh, between advertisers and marketers. So, and it was, it was uh, interesting to watch the the dawn of that adjustment. So catalogers like me, we went through the periods of, you know, is this internet thing going to stick around? And, <laughs> uh, you know, is it, it... It might be like the... I had some people tell me, <laughs> is it like the fax machine? Like the fax... Yeah, yeah. And then... It's a little more interactive than a fax machine, but, you know, just my opinion. Uh, so we went from that to, well, is it really incremental? And... Uh, so, you know, traditional catalogers were not early adopters for the most part. Well, and actually, it just occurred to me that many of the people listening to this may not realize there was a tiny period of time where all of a sudden there was a surge of people placing, you know, uh, particularly direct, you know, uh, catalog recipients placing orders via a fax machine. This was before email. It was sort of that sort of netherland between... Uh, you know, before email started, but you know there was like this surge of fax marketing. It was a thing. Uh, thankfully, it, it died quickly. Yeah. And it, you know, it was it was it was sort of almost amusing to watch what played out and what transpired because you know traditional catalogers were a little slow uh, to adapt, and we went through this period where these big catalog brands were just getting slammed by these review sites and, you know, on social media, and they just had no idea how to respond. And it took, uh, uh, it took quite a few, you know, uh, years, actually, for them to catch up. And if you think about, you know, the, consumer, the way we, we thought about consumers 
probably outside of the merchandising and creative teams in, in a direct marketing business, uh, you know, we, we thought about consumers in terms of how long did it take us to answer the phone when they called? <laughs> you know, what was the, what were the, you know, this was a huge thing, you know, debated at conferences and panels on, you know, uh, you know, what, what's the right, you know, wait time? You know, is it 20 seconds? Is it, you know, is it 80% of the calls answered in 20%, in 20 seconds? Uh, and, you know, I think probably the, the best thing, and, you know, it was, it was like medicine uh, in a lot of ways, is we've now moved to a world where if we have a problem in our business, consumers are going to let us know about it, and we're going to know very quickly, and it gives you an opportunity to adapt, uh, you know, which we didn't have. And, uh, you know, the only way, uh, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, that we could learn about what the consumer was thinking uh, was, you know, to do research, uh, primary research. Uh, it was expensive, and uh, you know, because of that, you really didn't do it or couldn't do it very often. So uh, that's that's been a huge change: is the ability for consumers to reach out and tell us how we're doing and do it almost in real time. Yeah, no, you're right on. So, like a second, I think you're right on. The, the you know, one change is that consumers can now reach out and find brands. I think another change, and that really affects direct marketers, but if you think about brand advertisers, you know, uh, advertisers that are trying to get their, trying to build a specific brand image, the world has changed for them because it's not all about just what they push out there. In fact, now consumers, through social media sites, through their conversation, are actually structuring and building those brands or, you know, and, and telling a story about those brands that the brand may like or may not like. And, you know, it's sort of like, a, you know, it's a, you, you can't really control uh, what's going to happen there. Certainly they try to do a lot of things to influence what people are talking about uh, and how people are talking about it, but the, you know, the way in which even brand advertisers can control the story, uh, you know, the internet completely turned upside down and has made much more of an equal conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, a lot of things are shifting, uh, you know, how have, how have marketers adapted to this? How have they, you know, uh, to this, you know, to these changes, how have they evolved? Well, it's, you know, it's taken, or it took a bit of time, but, you know, marketers and advertisers are smart folks, and, and uh, ultimately, um, they have, you know, figured it out, and, we, you know, we have figured it out. Uh, a big part of, I know, you know, Larry was looking at weblogs, trying to learn things, from, you know, about behavior on websites, you know, in 2003 and 2004. Uh, uh, 1999, or, or 1999, actually. 1999, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when it was just not even thinkable that you could build databases of individual consumer behavior just because of the cost and the you know the technology capabilities but you know i guess in the last 5 years as you know the cost of of um, you know capturing and processing and storing and sharing and analyzing data has you know approached zero uh, that's all changed and you know, one of the biggest changes recently, and one of the biggest ways that marketers have you know have adopted, uh, you know, to technology and the internet is in how we build audiences. So from the from the day I started in direct marketing in 1986 uh, until you know, we start we started doing this stuff in 2015, mm -hmm. uh, audiences were built based on transaction history. So. You know, Larry bought, you know, three times last year from Williams-Sonoma, so he might be a good candidate for a Crate and Barrel catalog. And 
that's how you got new customers. And uh, you know, we were using uh, you know the, the a history lesson, you know, uh, so historical data to predict what people are going to do in the future, which works. Uh, you know, it, it it supported the industry for a very very long time. Uh, but the big breakthrough is uh, the ability to understand what people are looking at today on your website and reach out to them and uh, you know, deliver very timely direct marketing to them uh, you know, in the, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours uh, later. And you know, this is still, you know, you know, it seems like you know, we've been doing this a long time now, but <laughs> I mean, this is still in its infancy. This, this whole concept, and it is, I think, going to be uh, uh, huge and, and dramatically change the face of how direct mail gets, uh, you know, gets sent. Yeah, no, I mean, we've talked about before, uh, direct mail is a $45 billion industry in the United States. Uh, businesses in the U.S. spent a lot more on direct mail than they did on Google digital advertising. Certainly, this intense signal has been used to uh, some extent, actually, to a, you know, particularly with digital display retargeting, has been used in digital advertising. But you know, the types of digital um, ads that you could use this intense signal with tended to be very poor performing in terms of response. And so, the you know, being able to um, marry this great data signal with a great response mechanism, a great response channel, direct mail. Is you know as you say we're at the you know we're just at the beginning of the story there, uh, but a but a rapidly growing and uh, and uh, evolving story, um, you know finding that you know you know paying attention to that signal of somebody reaching out to you and making it almost sort of a two way communication you know they reach out to you you reach back to them is one part of what's going on but what about personalization what are your, what are your thoughts there? The um you know the the thing that the parlor trick I just I guess I would call it or that, that's how we'll look at it you know in five or ten years of you know translating a website visitor to a postal name and address is is what most people focus on when thinking about you know digital to print but you know the that you know that's you know that's technology and so, you know some clever design and. Uh, you know, 10 years from now, that'll be a commodity, or, or less than 10 years from now, that'll be a commodity. Uh, the, re the real opportunity is to use those signals, to use that browsing data and activity uh, to personalize the mail pieces. So, you know, for example, if I, you know, I go into uh, a BMW dealership and I'm, you know, walking around and staring at a 6 Series sedan for... Uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes, the salesperson is not going to come over and drag me over to look at the three series, the lower price cars. They're going to focus on what I was looking at. Well, you know, we have exactly the same opportunity here. We know exactly what people are looking at, uh, you know, what site, you know, what pages uh, they visited on the site. And, you know, we can do exactly the same thing. We can target those folks and, you know, people are doing it today. A lot of our clients are you know, they'll do, you know, four or five, six versions uh, of uh, a, a triggered uh, postcard just, you know, based on what portion of the site someone was, was visiting. And uh, to me, that's going to be the real art going forward. Uh, it's not so much the address matching, but um, it, it's going to be understanding what people are looking at and what it means and, and converting those signals to the appropriate piece of advertising based on where that consumer is and, and their, you know, their journey to purchase. 
So, and you're usually the stats guy, but today I get to I get to talk about the stats. So, uh, just to you know, I think you're right on. You know, the the stats back you up. Uh, you know, when you look at sort of the the data around personalization, 77% of consumers have chosen, recommended, or paid more for a brand that provides a personalized service or experience. 74% of customers feel frustrated when website content is not personalized to them. Uh, and 88% of marketers believe that their prospects or customers expect a personalized experience. Uh, and of those marketers who are currently using personalization, a very similar 88% are seeing a measurable lift. So, you know, this whole idea of taking, you know, intent data and using it for personalization, you know, clearly fits in with the, with the direction that the marketing world is headed. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's really becoming all about the customer. And so, Larry, what is your uh, prediction on the consumer-advertiser relationship and where that's going to head over the next five years or so? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. The um, you know if you in, I'm glad you said a five year period because I think it's actually very different when you look at different time frames. Uh, so uh, you know clearly that two way conversation is uh, evolving. You know there's you know things like pop up blockers and uh, spam filters uh, have have started to give consumers more control. And truthfully, if you think about GDPR and the California online privacy laws. I think there's actually going to be some more control going back into the consumer's hands. And uh, I don't think this is, you know, many people think this is, oh my God, it's going to be terrible for advertisers, the sky is falling. Look, people still want, uh, they actually, pe people want good advertising. They want to be introduced to brands. They want to find things that are interesting to them. Uh, they just don't want to get a lot of stuff that's not interesting to them. Now, the, you know, the, the, the dance is going to be sort of how do advertisers, how can advertisers um, use the data that they need in order to figure out, you know, what is it that Alan actually wants, uh, without, while also providing consumers that comfort that their data is being protected, that their privacy is being protected. Uh, that's where I see over the next five years the, the evolution happening, is there's going to be sort of a push and pull there, and we'll find a balance. There'll be some things that maybe take things a little bit too far uh, on the um, uh, you know, on the data protection, uh, and not even data protection, but on the, you know, uh, consumers maybe pulling back a little bit. But there will be other consumers who are sharing. You know, I think there's a lot of studies that show millennials are actually very willing to share data in the right circumstance to the right advertiser. And so I think it's, I think it's going to be, you know, the dance is going to be around sort of how to share this information in a way that makes both parties comfortable. There was a uh, I, I didn't write down what it was, but there was a story I saw the other day about, uh, I think it's a coffee shop outside of one of the Ivy League schools, Brown or something like that, where the coffee is free if you're a student and you show your student ID, and you provide some information about your major, uh, your age, etc. In exchange, this coffee shop, which is sponsored by a number of brand advertisers, will share with the student some, uh, you know, something about a brand they think the student will be particularly interested in. The thing is thriving. It's a good exchange. Free coffee in exchange for a you know very respectful and you know not overbearing, not you know pop-ups in your face uh, kind of exchange. You know that's where I think that's a you know that's a, a tip of the iceberg example of how I think that exchange is going to uh, going to happen. What do you think? I think that you know that's that's where it's headed. That uh, that's what makes sense, and. Um, 
my one other question, what I've thought about as I've heard a number of times uh, a concept of uh, we will end up paying consumers to view our advertisements. Hey, they're giving them coffee and uh, outside and so of uh, maybe that's you know maybe that's already started. All right, well, so that'll do it for uh, this last episode of uh, at least with Alan and Larry of two guys and some data. Uh, Alan, it has been you are the best podcast partner I've ever had. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I think we're at nearly twenty episodes by now, so uh, you get the last word. What are you, uh, you going to do now? Uh, well, I'm going to go off and do retirement stuff, and uh, starting with a, a three-week trip to Southeast Asia um, next month, actually, now that it's October, it's, uh, it's next month, up. It's coming, coming up, up soon. Um, my punch list includes uh, attending a soccer match uh, in Anfield to see Liverpool play. I'm, as you know, I'm a big Liverpool supporter. Yep. Uh, and while I'm in that neck of the woods going up to Scotland and uh, you know, sampling some of the distilleries, up there, and um, I'm also going to try to teach myself to play blues piano. Very good. Uh, but uh, probably my immediate plan is to nap for two or three days. <laughs> that sounds and, very uh, good. So I want to thank all our listeners for supporting the podcast and uh, to wish everyone well in, in this journey to use data to enhance your marketing capabilities. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you want to read more about Navistone, check us out at navistone.com backslash blog. And if you've enjoyed today's show, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening. I'm Larry Cavanaugh. And I'm Alan Abbott, and I'll see you down the road. Bye.